Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Breakout Con 2019. Episode 208, GM Masterclass. Presented by Chris Spivey, Robin DeLaws, James Mendez-Hodes, and Seta Linal, with moderation from Corey Reed. everybody uh at the back can you hear me okay okay the people in the middle can hear me good enough <laughs> uh this is the gm masterclass panel uh thanks all for coming out i'm going to just quickly introduce the panel and then we'll uh really just hand it over to questions for you folks this is a chance for you to kind of put your gming problems into the brains of uh some very experienced folks so with us today we have uh right on my left here chris spivey Writer and developer of games you may have heard of, such as Harlem Unbound, and it's three any awards. Seventh Seal, Trail of Cthulhu, currently working on a game called City of Mist. I'm doing a District City of Mist. I'm working on a game called Redacted for Chaosium, and a a redacted line for Chaosium. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, And next to Chris, we have James, James Mendes Hose. Probably know from his rhyming uh, bio on the breakout site. Oh, they act, a, they kept that. that oh, good. They totally published it. <laughs> it forever now. Uh, you're a writer on Seven C, is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was a writer and developer on Seven C. Um, I uh, blog about race and culture and religion and gaming at jamesmendeshodes.com. Um, I guess more relevant to this, I'm, I'm also a professional GM, mostly for little kids. Um, so I. I had a Tumblr Dungeon Elementary, which I'm probably going to resurrect at some point. So, awesome. So, if anybody's got uh, questions or concerns about DMing for kids, obviously we have an expert in the room. And on the end there, we have Robin Laws. that I'm going to bother to mention, but including Hill Folk, Feng Shui, the Esoterrace, and most recently, I think, the Yellow King. The Yellow King role-playing game. Yep. Uh, winner of five gold and five silver A's. Uh, and I'm told has a very soothing voice. You can be the judge. So uh, how we're going to do this today, uh, if you have a question, while there's a gap in the proceedings like this, just put your hand up and we'll just call on you to ask your question. If one of our panelists is speaking and a question comes up for you, put your hand up and one of the uh, volunteers here will bring you a little card to write your question on. And they'll just bring the card up to me and we'll just get it in seamlessly so you don't have to kind of sit there waiting for one person to finish. Okay, so with that, I was going to ask each of the panelists to give us sort of their one number one tip for a new DM. What would you have to say, Chris? Can you start us off? Uh, preparation is going to be the ruling thing for the new GM because you're going to need all those notes to be able to instantly sort of answer questions and bounce around one. Preparation. Uh, I'd say embrace vulnerability. Uh, it's okay to get things wrong, not be sure, and ask your players for help. Uh, Every GM who's a good GM has gotten there by learning things. And you have, to, you have to see your starting games as part of your learning process, as a place where you can make mistakes and get feedback if you want to move through that. Uh, for a new GM, my number one piece of advice is just you can do it. Uh, people have been figuring this out since the rule books didn't make sense. Um, and and that, that was many decades ago, and now they do. And so uh, people <laughs> get all of this research. That's good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah. If, if I can figure out the, the blue box in 1978, uh, you're fine. You're good. Just trust yourself. This is all designed to be fun. That The moment of can I do this or not, what are my, th- just jump in and do it. It'll work. Trust oh. yourself. Thank you. So is there any uh, questions from the audience right off the bat, right here in the front? How do you direct your players without making them feel like they're being terribly railroaded? 
<laughs> so there's a premise in that question that perhaps we want to start with, which is, do you actually want to direct your players, or do you want to uh, give them some balls to play with, to give them a, a backup idea to pursue, and then see what they do and react to it? Because if your goal is to have the players do any one thing in particular, um, we have bad news for you. <laughs> so uh, It's called, I only have so much time in a week to write content for my game and be like, it's like, I need you to stay on this relative path right here. Don't take a 90 degree turn, please. Uh, I don't, uh, well, I, I always say my, my players can't derail my plan if I never had one. <laughs> Like it's, you should imagine that meme with the guy going like that in the leather jacket. Um, uh, but uh, what 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 game are you running? Uh, 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 homebrew fifth edition. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that's more complicated than anything I ever run. Um, uh, so that's that's very impressive to me. Um, I find Dungeons and Dragons extremely uh, intimidating. Um, but. Yeah, I guess there, there is that basic question about premise, which is where um, where does the direction come from in the first place? Are like are you setting it out and then your players are responding to it? Are the players setting it out and then you're responding to it? The the latter is how I do most of like my own GMing. Uh, I'd say it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Like I definitely like try to keep them on like a certain like somewhat of a path, but like, like, okay, it's like, there's room for detours on this path. So something like D&D &D does have a lot of prep time involved, particularly yeah. encounters, which are the meat and potatoes of D&D. But what you can do then is prepare your encounters, but what the narrative path that leads to those encounters is the thing that you leave unspecified until they do something. So the players, so, so you've got a goblin encounter, you've got some land sharks, uh, you've got some giant otters, uh, and uh, you then uh, uh, can put story in front of them and they can make various choices, and weirdly, their choices will often lead to land sharks, giant otters, and goblins. <laughs> uh, but the, the, what that means in terms of the choices they make is that you've got stuff in your back pocket that you can apply to the situation that you give them, but I would worry less about giving them a path that leads where you want them to go, then rather uh, I have a bunch of possibilities in my pocket that I prepared for, and they're gonna eventually pick one of them. So it's less about directing than it is sort of uh, nudging and giving choices. So Chris, do you wanna weigh in on this? Um, for me, it's more of that you create a skeleton of your scenario. You sort of have the main idea that you hook them with, uh, a couple different paths, but you open it up, they can take any of the leads that will inevitably, sort of how they originally said, lead them to where you want to go. It's not pushing them, but you're letting them sort of wander around instead of taking like the interstate to get there. Let's, uh, I see a question back there. Um, I'd love to know each of your strategies for slowly building terror. Terror. <laughs> Should I say? Terror. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Parliament bound. <laughs> Um, for me, a lot of it starts with the actual setting itself. You sort of bring in all the players and you let them understand some of the general mundane things and you slowly sort of add in. One of my big things I like to use con game or home game is I use music. And the music itself sort of changes at different beats throughout the story. And I build the soundtrack throughout. And it has a couple different dips, so if they go on sidetracks, I know the songs, so I'll know when to like funnel in something else. Um, so it's about going, as Chris suggests, going step by step. And uh, you start with what is the smallest version of this manifestation that I can make creepy, and I'm going to try and uh, uh, lean toward having that be the thing that happens first. And then what's the next level es escal escalation of that? And then, you know, and so finally, uh, you know, your players will do all of the work and, and make sure that you give them sensory information so that they can put themselves not only in the thoughts of their characters, but in the physical sensations. So think of uh, sensory imagery, whether it's cold or, or damp. And, you know, there's also, and, you know, there's a whole stock set of, you know, horror images that you can use as you um, move them toward that. But, and watch what engages them 
and what seems to, to trouble them and freak them out and then do more of that and start to play on that more so that it's uh, uh, rather than just you presenting them with a, a movie with all of these film beats that you are responding to what they do and cranking up whatever it is that they tend to find uh, upsetting. So uh, for example in the last long-running horror game that I ran it turned out just uh, as a side detail uh, I had some foxes showed up and I played the sound effects of foxes and if you've ever heard foxes screaming it turns out to be awful. It turns out to be a terrible, terrible thing to hear and so the players really responded to that so for the next year of this long-running Yellow King campaign <laughs> the foxes kept coming back and every time it, it escalated and got bigger and bigger. So wait for something that they respond to and, and then dial that up. And one of the great tricks I like to use is when we get to a certain horror point and everyone's really invested, I do a sudden shift to humor and that sort of like slightly derails them so they know that something's gonna happen but they don't know when it's gonna happen but they're sort of caught up in the laughing moment which makes a horror even better when it comes out a little bit later. Uh, are you are you running a like a horror specific game? I'm, I'm looking at uh, fear itself. Excellent choice. I personally uh, I'm afraid of horror. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it works. I, I'm afraid of jump scares and a lot of things. And the only horror movie I've ever seen on purpose was Get Out. Um, so I think uh, moments when I've successfully created that effect, uh, which tended to be a little bit by accident, were um, based on uh, moments when a player had connected really, really deeply to an NPC. I'd made an NPC or something like that who they had fallen in love with or become protective of or something like that. And then fleshing out that NPC and revealing their vulnerabilities and their flaws and that uh, their dad is Dracula or something um, then ends up um, creating creating terror in proportion to that player's investment in the thing that I have created. So a question that's just come up that it's kind of related to that, James. Uh, somebody just written, if my players don't give much feedback, how do I know what to improve or build on? Oh. Uh, uh, I think asking them explicit questions and hounding them until they actually answer them <laughs> uh, is really great because when I worked at the container store, they told us communication is leadership. <laughs> it was a really weird place to work. Uh, Rob or Chris, do you have any other thoughts on getting more feedback from, from players who maybe are a little... For, for my home group, I actually do, sort of, we have sort of have an ongoing email chain, so after the game, I might usually send the summary out, ask if they have any questions, and it's somewhat times questions about the actual scenario itself, or about some of the different system mechanics they engaged with, or what they like their character to have, what their character did, or what the character could do. Sure. And when you bring in them talking about their character, that sort of opens them up to be more forthcoming with information, more communicative, as James said. Uh, this can be challenging because sometimes you have to respect people's reticence. Uh, and it is uh, unusual to have an entire group of people who are kind of shy and withdrawn and, and uh, don't uh, give away a lot of response and, and don't want to engage with you afterwards. And, uh, but often you'll have a group where there's one casual player who's perfectly happy to just go along with whatever everybody else wants to do and doesn't want to impinge and uh, you know, will we'll, uh, you know, sort of freeze up in terror if you ask them whether they enjoyed it or not or they'll just very quickly say that they did. So um, you want to make sure that you don't push people too hard uh, into uh, breaking their comfort barrier in terms of the, the feedback. So uh, you may, it may be a matter of looking for very subtle cues, but, but I've run for certain people who are just, uh, whatever excitement they're getting out of the game is happening entirely in their head and they're, they're giving nothing away. And it would be a real challenge to play with a whole group of that uh, type, but they are basically consenting to what's going on. Uh, because uh, you know they they would have to, you know if they really weren't enjoying it they uh, well they might be totally non-confrontational and just leave but if they're showing up week after week mm -hmm. they, they got to be getting something out of it so sort of no news is good news 
Um, it, it's not ideal because as a GM, you want that of feedback course. to be able to but energize you. But if they keep you. coming back, but if they say. keep coming back, um, there are some people you just don't want to push them into giving you feedback. Sure. Yeah. Your feedback is, "Yep, I'm here again." It is. It is probably worth checking whether. So sometimes, if people continue playing but they're <clears throat> unwilling to speak directly. Uh, uh, to you about how they feel about the game. Uh, sometimes that could be because they feel unsafe or uncomfortable about a social dynamic, um, either in or out of game. Um, so it may be it may be worth going over like your uh, safety precautions uh, for your game and uh, what you're doing to make players uh, feel socially comfortable mm -hmm. uh, speaking to you and engaging with the game. What, one thing that just occurs to me is also some people are more comfortable in some channels than others. So some people may say more via email or text message than they would say to your face. Uh, I'm going to move on to, this is a bit more of a, a concrete sort of question. Is there somewhere you three share or make playlists? And I'm going to expand that to other kinds of resources. Do you have web presences where people can go and sort of see some of your GMing usefulnesses? Uh, JamesMendezHodes.com. It's hard to spell, but come up to me afterwards. I'll give you a card. And there's only one. Yeah. Uh, does this mean literally music playlists? The playlist is the what specifically? Yeah. Literally music. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm on Spotify, um, and uh, my my username I think is Robin Laws or Robin D Laws, and I do have a folder called RPG soundtracks. So there's like there an go. ominous one, a fight scenes one. Uh, they're set up to be played on random, not in sequence. I'm more sporadic. I may drop something on Twitter. I may put something on Facebook. So you always have to be watching to see when it's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, so a similar kind of question, but and we've touched on this a bit. But do you anything? Do you do anything around the table to set the ambience, like play music, dim the lights? What do you do to improve immersion beyond the narrative? For me, one of the key things I like to use. I'm I'm a huge proponent for music because music. music appeals to people on a level I don't think any of us understand. And that can be for humor, that can be for horror, that can just be for opening people up so we can talk about how we make characters, how we're actually going to like explain the rules, and goes up from there. For the actual game itself, I like to have PowerPoints, maybe some sort of tactile handouts for people to feel, they can read over it, and that also helps them read potentially like a news article to the entire party, and that's pulling them more and more into the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I use uh, music and sound effects, and, and I think the trick is to use it uh, sporadically. If you have music playing throughout the entire evening, it sort of will kind of fade into the background. And unless you have it timed perfectly, a colleague of mine, Will Heinmarch, is the master of uh, doing uh, music timed to every moment uh, in his game and somehow manages to choreograph that perfectly. Um, if you go to the Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com and search for Will Heinmark, you can listen to our interview with him where he uh, talks about doing that. But I find that I, I don't have that level of attention to play to playlist, so I'd rather have like one song pop up to, uh, and sometimes it's sort of a joking thing where, uh, you know, the characters are going on a mushroom trip in RuneQuest, so here comes the Jefferson airplane, <laughs> um, and sometimes it's more serious. And also uh, sound effects. Uh, particularly in a horror, particularly ones that uh, signify, uh, again, a recurring awful motif. James, um, I, I don't really do uh, immersion stuff that often, but um, I think that, again, I like to make players do the work for me. Um, so my players have started making like Pinterest boards for their, for their characters for an online game. Um, and I think that, um, like, if I if I do things to make the atmosphere uh, immersive, that's it's kind of hit or miss because I immersion isn't a huge priority for me when I'm a player, um, so I don't understand the topic as well as my players do. They get it more than I do, um, but if I can if I can see the places where they like to to get into the aesthetics around the game, like making playlists for their characters, making Pinterest boards for their char for their characters, um, you know. Something as simple as like sharing memes their character would find funny, or like that uh, would that would uh, attach to them, um, and I can get the players in a conversation with each other about these aesthetic uh, ephemera. Um, that um, that can do a lot to sort of raise the basic the base immersion level of the game, mm -hmm. um, and that's great because I'm not good at it myself. <laughs> so that actually ties into a question I've just received which is around getting more player interaction outside of combat. 
somebody's writing that, that fi they find that little to non-existent. Mm -hmm. How do you get the PCs to interact more, like what you were just describing? What are some strategies that make that go? Oh, um, uh, well, uh, again, I guess the question is, uh, what what system are we uh, are we working with? I don't know. This is the person who asked about getting players, PCs to interact more as well as travel. D&D. D&D, uh, &D. okay. Um, well, you're an expert. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, so something that I've really wanted to try recently is most of the most of the games that I play, most of the mechanics have to do with social stuff. Um, and then um, one of the things that I've wanted to try is running characters in D&D &D who simultaneously have character sheets in a game that does social interaction. Um, one of the things, for example, there's this game called Starcrossed, uh, which is amazing, and it's about two people who are in forbidden love with each other. Um, and you make character sheets based on like your basically your like romantic attributes and then the actual system of the game is pulling from a Jenga tower every time you flirt and then every time whenever the uh, tower falls over you act on your ill-conceived attraction um, and one of the things I noticed is that all of the things on this character sheet are not on the D&D &D character sheet um, so I've been personally playing with the idea of running D&D &D and then simultaneously running a different game which actually has mechanics for, uh, for social interaction. Um, so at the risk of self-promotion, I would suggest that you look at a game that I designed called Hill Folk, which is all about interpersonal interaction. And uh, the, uh, ideally, if you run it for your group, I found that was this with my own group, that they will then interact interestingly in all other games, including trad style games. Um, or you can just steal some of the techniques from it in character generation and add them to your D&D characters. So one of the main uh, things that you do when you establish your cast of characters in Hillfolk is that each character specifies something that they want from the other characters, and then that player uh, explains why they can't give them that thing. And so that immediately gives them something to interact about rather than just the usual argument over who knocks down the door or you know whether we're going to openly do the terrible things that the paladin doesn't want us to do or sneak around his back which are the classic role-playing things that were built into the original D&D &D and are all completely dysfunctional or and so racist. right um, and so uh, uh, and, and there's uh, as uh, Amanda suggests there's all sorts of other social games that do similar things so find a game that does that and there, you'll almost invariably find that since D&D &D doesn't do that you can just bolt that other thing into D&D &D. okay so a question here about handling plot hooks that flatline due to players that self call themselves not creative so how do you engage not creative players There's this book called Play Unsafe uh, by Graham Walmsley, and it's a book that he wrote about gaming after uh, taking an improv class for like a semester. And my, my favorite piece of advice there uh, is don't be afraid to be boring. Often the things that seem really obvious and plotting to you will seem genius to the whole rest of the table. So I think that as if you are the GM and your players are worried about not being creative, um, Lifting the curtain in behind your or in front of your creative process can be really, really useful. So after you've, um, so if the if the players get really excited about um, something that you made up, a character that you made up, um, in downtime, you know, in between sessions or after the game, talk to them about how you did that. Um, and I like doing this because sometimes my players will be like, oh, this thing was genius. And I'll say, well, really, I just, I felt like I was making the most obvious leap of logic. Um, and I think, so ex showing my process and showing that my process isn't uh, like magical or genius or abstruse and that it's something that they too can do um, is a great way for them to learn and to engage while not being creative not being creative. <laughs> um, to, to reverse the advice I was giving earlier, if you do have a group who are like, we don't know what, to, what plot hooks to grab, we're not gonna, we don't know how to suggest a plot hook, that's when some groups do appreciate being led. And sometimes it's because they don't see themselves as being creative. Sometimes it's because the dynamic in the group is they can never come to a mutual decision on anything. Uh, and so there are groups that are better with a sandbox environment where you just, uh, wait for them to find things that they want to interact with. But 
it may be that this group wants uh, the guy who assigns them the mission at the beginning of every episode. So this group really wants the uh, person with the briefcase who said, okay, you've got to go and uh, we need you to go into Sarajevo and get the emeralds or whatever it is. They may want very clear guidance from you as, as to what to do. And they may find that after you give them a couple of here's your mission style things, then they will, oh, that was a plot hook. Oh, I could have maybe thought of that. And then they may spontaneously get there or they may just want a very simple, straightforward, okay, give us the objective and then we'll start having fun. Okay. Uh, I'll move on to the next question. Moment of silence there, just you know, let it pass. Uh, so this question, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, so if this is your question, maybe we'll need a, bit, a little bit of clarification. How do you empower your players at the table when the story may or may not support traditional empowerment play? I'm not sure I understand the question. This, this is good, I like this. You like this? Yeah. Do you have something, do you have a response? Um, a, a lot of times um, players have difficulty feeling seen uh, because there are certain cultural paradigms that tend to dominate uh, traditional role playing. Um, they come out of they come out of um, like traditions of like like D and D comes from uh, European tabletop war games combined with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, it comes from an extremely, extremely specific cultural paradigm that says a lot of very specific things about race, gender, religion, sexuality, ability, etc. Um, so diversifying what's going on at your table, both in terms of the game choices and the people represented in the fiction, um, can can make people feel like they belong, which is one of the first steps towards making them feel empowered. Thank you. It goes back to the very basis when you're establishing your scenario and all the NPCs you interact with. You should chart out everything about them and then look at what every specific person is. It's something I even talk about in Harlem Bound. When you specifically, if you go back and you see if all of your villains are one race, one color, one sexuality, then you know that you have a problem that you need to address. You need to go and change that because all the people that the players interact with in the scenario is what reinforces their view of your game world and how they can engage with it. Does the person who wrote the question want to say anything? Are they getting the answer they were looking for? It's mostly one of the recurrent comments and questions I have when GMing. Um, I am a very strong proponent of empowerment play, but I don't want it to be focused necessarily in that only good things can happen to my characters because I think there's an important distinction between the player and the character that the player is playing. It becomes a weird paradox between is the player the character, which they are, they bring themselves to the character, but at the same time, how do we make them as an individual walk away with something beneficial, even if, let's say, they have a really, really difficult boss fight that Maybe as characters they weren't happy they had, but as players they are. I think I understood. <laughs> that, that was clear, I think. Thank you. Does the panel want to add anything to what's been said? So I, I, I think that uh, in a world where the results are not always aspirational or where there is uh, suffering required to uh, get to victory or you can have sort of a pyrrhic victory, that the thing is to... Uh, but you still want people to walk away feeling that they've had a win, you know, they've been through adversity, but they've come out the other side, that that is something that you want to emphasize by, uh, you know, at the end, if they're, uh, give them some way to have a win, even though it's very difficult. And so ask yourself, what is the, uh, as you're planning on the scene, what is the possible uh, you know, emotional upside, even if things go badly. You know, can they, you know, save the villagers and, and help them get away from the, the, the boss monster, even though they're the ones going in and they get hit, so that at the end, there's some sort of coda or something that shows them, that puts in perspective that what they did was powerful, even though they got pasted on the way to doing it. I'm actually going to rephrase what I said. This is meant more in the way how do you make the players feel like they walked away with something even when they lose? Mm. 
Did everyone hear the question? Yeah. 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 How do you make the players feel like they walked away with something even when they lose? For me, for instance, even my Gen Con games I'm running here, I created pre-gens. And all the pre-gens are from different backgrounds and they sort of tell the story of the character. For instance, one of them is an African-American professor and it talks about some of his parents who wanted him to be more from when he escaped from slavery, talks, touches on his time at Miskatonic University, and it puts it in a pulp noir setting. And then you have that character built with all that pain and tragedy in their story, and whatever they do during the course scenario is important and it moves the world along. But it's not, the world isn't set in such a way that they will automatically win. Whatever actions they take is in and of itself an achievement and a success to be acknowledged. If, when I'm a player, and if, I, if I'm experiencing a lot of failure, um, if the, the storyline and the, the particularities of the kinds of failures that I'm running into feel very particular to my character, if it feels like these things that I'm failing at are really like what my character is actually about, and bring out the choices that I made in creating them, even if the dice are not helping me out, um, then I feel, as a player, deeply validated. Because even though I failed every role in the game, a lot of the the other players and the GM were responding to and riffing on choices that I made, and that makes those choices feel important, which makes me feel important. Uh, one way to frame it is have a coda where the players get to contemplate how these failures will lead to future success. So the simplest way uh, in more traditional games is, uh, well, here's the experience points that you got, uh, or here's the ability that you learned, or here's... Uh, this n bonus that you'll have next time you're dealing with a trap or whatever it is, and you can lay out, you know, you can actually give them literal rewards of uh, here's a mechanical expression of how the thing you learned from get going through the meat grinder will help you the next time. And even if it's a one shot game and that never leads to anything else, that still gives a player the feeling oh, well, you know, we all got. Uh, we all got uh, roughed up that day, but we knew the next time that we would uh, know how to deal with the, with the star aliens when they came back or, or what have you. Or you can also let them sort of look forward into, you know, what, what moral or emotional lessons did you learn from that defeat that you are then going to be able to apply to the next thing that you do. Uh, I'm going to move on. Uh, what do you do when either you or the players write you into a corner? i.e. doing something utterly unplanned or failing something plot critical. I'm a strong believer in improvisation. I am more than happy to completely throw out any scenario I have and riff with whatever we're doing. If we're at a con game and I know that we have a limited amount of time, I take that into consideration. But the most important thing is that game is about the players playing it and their experience right then. Um, if you're looking at your story and it looks like there's a point where everything will fall apart if they fail, uh, set it up so that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, uh, set it up so that uh, the question is not, uh, do we succeed or fail, and failure is boring and stupid, it ends the story, but do I succeed or do we succeed at a cost? Um, so that's one way to do it. On the other end of it is if uh, you do find yourself in that situation where you seem to have found yourself in a, a, a dead end story-wise, uh, don't be afraid to grab for the most obvious horrible cliches to get yourself out of it because the alternative is worse. So, you know, the, uh, you know, Han Solo shows up in the Millennium Falcon and, and, and saves your bacon, but then he wants something from you. Or, uh, you know, it turns out that the, the gem in your pocket that you thought was just worth uh, two gold pieces begins to glow and, oh, wait, this, this, it says Deus Ex Machina right on it. That's not saving. <laughs> Don't be a, you know, a, cliche is often your friend, and it's never, uh, uh, that's never more true than when you backed yourself into a corner. Or the old New trope where someone with a gun breaks in, and you kill them, and they have a clip. Yeah. The, uh, um, yes, I, I totally stand by all of the, all of the advice given so far. Um, I'm also a, a really big believer in improvisation, um, as you probably have guessed I must be because I don't plan anything. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, for those of you who uh, feel a little uh, uncomfortable doing the kind of thing that uh, Chris is advocating, um, it's important to remember that improvisation is not unstructured. Improv has structure and runs on principles and uh, agendas that you can come up with ahead of time um, that apply to more than one situation. Um, like the 
principles that you just heard. Um, I'm also a really big proponent of when I'm in that situation, um, being able to step back from the table and say, hey, uh, I'm a little stumped what to do. Can we take like five, 10 minutes and everyone gets more water and I'll think about it for a minute? Um, if for no reason other than so I relax. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, oh, go ahead. Were you going to? Uh, it, it was just related. Um, have you ever like had a scenario where the players might fail here, but then you write like a backup scenario, so it's like another way they could circumnavigate that and get a, get a win in a different manner? Um, usually whenever I know that I'm writing a scenario or something, I usually have a sort of uh, plot skeleton, and there are multiple ways to, to acquire the same core clues. So, for instance, you may not find the knife that the preacher used to like stab someone with, but you may find the little kid that saw the preacher stab the person mm. and says, I know the preacher stabbed the person. He did it right here with this knife. Okay. Uh, fairly prosaic question, but uh, maybe we'll make it interesting. How do you make travel time as opposed to time travel <laughs> in your game more interesting? <laughs> So the players are just going from one place to another. Um, I use a technique where uh, if the point is just to make it feel like uh, the travel has elapsed, but you don't actually have anything that want, wants to happen until they get to the city, but for some reason you care and you don't want to just go, six days later you show up in the city, which is a technique I would also recommend. Um, but if you want to feel that they went on an arduous journey that was really hard to go to that city for six days. I will then just say to each of the players in turn, what was one of the terrible dangers that you encountered on the trail and how did you overcome it? And so uh, that's uh, less sort of random, it's less time wasted because you still you know, only take five or 10 minutes, but it makes the story point that every time you go to that city is gonna be hard. Thank you. Uh, player character death, is it useful in a campaign setting? As a Call of Cthulhu GM, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, Chris, besides entertaining the GM, <laughs> what other purposes does it serve? Um, part of it for a horror game is it establishes stakes. If uh, you're playing in a horror game and you know that you will never die no matter what happens and your sanity will never be shattered, your bones will never be broken, really, why are you there? You should play something else. I think Toon from back in the day is an excellent <laughs> game. <laughs> But, joking aside, it's important because it establishes plot. It establishes the tone of the game. And it gives a chance for another character to come in with additional clues and moves the plot. I find, I find, I find PC death uh, frustrating as a GM. I even find NPC death frustrating as a GM because it takes away options that I have and I feel uncomfortable in that situation. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it, but I still... Uh, I still feel anxious about that situation for that reason. Um, I also think that it's important in discussing the initial social contract of your game to discuss whether PC death is going to be a thing or not. Mm -hmm. um, because springing that on someone who happens not to be okay with it is not an experience that any of us look forward to. Um, so yeah, talk about it ahead of time. Some, pe some people are really, really into it. Other people aren't. And yeah, you got to have that conversation. Um, uh, one thing to think about is whether is this a dramatically satisfying death that would feel like the, the end of a storyline on in in an ongoing television show or whatever. Uh, does this have a reason to happen? Or did they just randomly fail their role and they got bitten on the ankle by a centipede? You know, it's like, will the other members of the group have to go back and, and lie at the tavern about why, about how he died because the way he died was too stupid. So, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. I play that fiasco game. Yeah, there, there we go. Yeah, so if it's a fiasco game, you know, you're all Coen Brothers characters against centipedes, that's, that's what the deal is, right? Um, I'm writing this playlist right now. Um, and I've even had situations where I have wanted to save a character and the player was like, nope, this is my epic death. Yep. It's like, okay, yep. that, that's great. Um, and so uh, a fitting death, um, a poetic death, uh, is absolutely, uh, you know, it's a part of uh, the narrative tradition that we draw from. Uh, so therefore, uh, you know, it's something that can work. But just sort of a meaningless death because roles went weird uh, is something that makes me uh, want to fudge as much as I can without breaking the idea that there are stakes. Right. 
so let's talk about ending or wrapping up a campaign. Do you have any tips on how to do that successfully? Uh, I, I think that thinking about the ending of things as you're thinking about the beginning of things is a, is a really, really good idea. Um, especially because you don't want to wait until the player tells you, yeah, I'm moving away from a different job um, to start doing that planning. Um, but yeah, like uh, like Rebecca Sugar and Ian Jones-Cordy, uh, when they were conceiving of Steven Universe, had the ending that was five seasons ahead already in mind, and they didn't know what they were going to do in the middle. And that worked out well for them. Um, I like having a similar idea of it, um, and very often that comes from conversations with the players about what they think that their character's arc is going to be and what moments, what beats they need to hit to feel validated with their character choices. And sometimes when you set up the perfect ending in the premise of what you're doing, which is what any uh, novelist does, right, that the ending is, is seated within the premise, um, it will come a little sooner than you imagined. Uh, and this happened to me in one game that I was, I was playtesting this game, and I, for design reasons, wanted to keep playtesting it, but for story reasons, it's like, no, we can't, this moment has happened, this game is over, we're moving on. For me, it's that the players feel that no matter what happens in the campaign, that whatever they did made a difference. They may not have had, they may not have succeeded, they may have, have succeeded or may have failed, but all those choices for those years that you've played should have repercussions on that world that they know that is lasting because of them. If you can get them to think that they thought of the thing that you planned for them to do all along, <laughs> that, that's A plus jamming. So players who are smart but not too smart. Players uh, who are just as brilliant as you are. <laughs> uh, so question, I have a seven-year-old. How would you suggest getting them into role-playing? And what system would you recommend? Um, so there's a, there's a few ways to do this. Uh, first of all, definitely observe the role-playing that your child is already doing. Your child is already playing role-playing games. I guarantee it. Um, if they have friends, if there's a playground, if there's a cardboard box in the house that's awesome, they are, they are playing role-playing games. So taking cues from what they're already doing is great. And I think that we as game designers don't do that nearly, nearly as often as we should. Um, so that's uh, so that's one thing, like structuring things around the role play they're already doing. Another is um, to f get systems which actually speak to the situation that you're talking about. Um, uh, Happy Birthday Robot and Doe Pilgrims of the Flying Temple uh, by Daniel Solis both have advice in the text specifically for uh, parents and teachers running games for their kids. So they talk directly to your situation. Uh, there's No Thank You Evil, which I haven't played, but which is also based around the idea of uh, working with uh, working with little kids. Um, one thing that I, I will definitely caution you about is that um, as they start to get a little bit older, if you show a child two identical, two identical games and you say that they're the same, but this one over here on the right is much more mechanically complex, they really want to play this one. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Uh, as a GM, what are your metrics for success and failure for a session? Uh, if the players had fun, really at the end of the day, because I'm really big on that we're telling a story together, and whatever we're doing, we're doing it in that moment as a, as a team, because it's not me against you or you against me. And once we walk away, if they had fun, they're gonna talk about that, there'll be something they remember, they'll tell their friends about it, and their friends may wanna go and get into gaming, or they'll talk about this thing that they did. And for me, that's huge, because part of my message I'm doing at Dark Hue Studios is I'm trying to change the conversation and make it more open and inclusive for people. And if people are enjoying what I'm doing, they're going to tell other people about it, and then they're going to do the same thing. Thank you. And, and Gage, uh, assuming you have emotionally demonstrative players, uh, with how they respond while they're playing. Uh, because often, uh, I don't know if you know this about us nerds, but if you ask people questions afterwards, sometimes overthinking will occur. And people uh, will talk themselves out of having enjoyed the thing that they very patently enjoyed in front of you for four hours. So my metric is always about gauging uh, how people are responding in the moment uh, and weighing that a lot more heavily. Now, I don't dismiss what people want to say afterwards, but uh, know the difference between uh, 
people talking themselves out of things because they're overthinking and having you know a salient uh, bit of information that is valuable for you to use in the future. My favorite things to overthink in this context are um, <laughs> moments which it seemed like really worked for some people but really didn't for others. Um, like, and it could be as simple as like, I made up an idea and I thought it was terrible, but the players loved it and they're all still talking about it. Um, what happened there? Um, or um, the less happy one is when one player was really, really into something that was going on and another player really, really wasn't. Um, those are moments to investigate further. So we have a related question to that actually, which is how do you approach the situation when one player seems to be playing a totally different game mood from the others? That can be really disruptive. Oh, well, first it depends if you're at a convention or if you're in a home game. Okay. If you're in a home game, it's easy to sort of have a side conversation with that person while you're grabbing a beer, you're grabbing chips, and you go, hey, um, so I see that you're doing this sort of thing, this is kind of what we're going for, how do you feel about that? And you engage them without bringing anyone else into the conversation so no one feels weird or awkward. Uh, any tips here for this very specific question? Reading or internalizing pre-published adventures? Reading from page one is dreadfully boring. <laughs> uh, well, you should read adventures by people who write good adventures. <laughs> if, Maybe if it's page, from page one, one should be boring. boring. Yes, mm. page one is boring. That's, that's at the fault of the, the writer. Um, go through them, make notes. Imagine what's going on. Look for uh, unanswered questions. Look for things that you can add. Uh, look for things that you can tailor to the PCs if you know who they are. Uh, I'd say if you're if you're not going to read the whole adventure, very often the most important things to learn are the characterizations of the NPCs who are in play. Uh, because even if your plot goes off the rails, if the NPCs are still in play and you feel confident in how you would play them and their motivations, then you can you still have stuff to work with. Awesome. I think there was someone had a follow up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, but the, what I was worried about was the con game, right? I know how to do it with my home players, but do you just write off a con game when one person is? Like, no. I don't want. I don't ever want to write off a game like that. <laughs> no. that you... I don't know quite how to reshape the mood of the table when there's one person who's so far off the reservation. So um, one of the things that I like to do, I had a little bit of a situation like that yesterday, is I had someone who was playing a character and they're just trying to run with the entire plot and leave everyone else behind, is if you start breaking things down by time increments. You give them like a little couple of hours, like you, it's two hour blocks. And you're in this two hour block, sort of what's everyone doing? And lets you move the spotlight from player to player. It also brings in people that may have been quiet and not really wanting to engage because they didn't want to get into whatever that was. And then it lets everyone hear all the different parts of the story together. And they go, oh, all right, uh, I'm obviously doing something that I shouldn't be doing, and I will adjust course to play with the rest of my party. And playing very differently than the rest of the group seems like a very Canadian way of saying that this person is being selfish or heedless. <laughs> and and uh, at a con game, uh, and I've have not had this uh, situation that I, if I thought that somebody was running away with the game in, in, in a way that was uh, intentionally or unconsciously uh, toxic or was wrecking everybody else's fun, uh, I am enough of a jerk to just very quickly say, oh, no, sorry, uh, we can't do this, um, and, and break character. And, and uh, you can't, as Chris suggests, break away from the table to have a conversation and make that less awkward. So just go, oh, no, we're. Uh, please uh, heed everybody else and, and play along. And that's not an ideal situation, but uh, in a con scenario, you're mm -hmm. flying by the seat of your pants. I don't yeah. think, sorry. Um, oh, I was just going to say that uh, one way that you could bring that into the conversation is uh, through the use of your safety mechanism. Um, so if you have your X card or script change or support flower on the table, remember that that's not just there for situations where it can be triggering or uncomfortable. It can also be used to moderate uh, tone and content and genre. Uh, I was there when the first ever X card was ever made, and it was actually used for tone, content, and genre first. And worst case, if you're in this and you don't really want to do these things, you can do what I like to do. I, I am known as a scotch drinker, and I'll say, we need a five-minute scotch break. And people can go to the bathroom, it puts a little bit of humor in it, and then when people are sort of wandering away, you still have that brief talk with that person. 
And, and for someone who's disruptive, there is a non-confrontational thing that applies to a lot of cases, which is, I need you to play a sympathetic character. Sure. I need you to play a likable character. And that uh, co covers a multitude of sins. Just be explicit about the expectations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we've got just a few minutes, and we've got one last question here. As a GM, how do you shift gears to be a player? I always find myself stuck in GM mode. Um, I don't usually have that problem. I like to play more than I like to run, but I find myself running more than I ever get to play. Got it? Yeah. I mean, likewise, but uh, I, I guess I, I try to run with the good GM instincts in terms of thinking about my PC uh, in terms of how they're relevant to all the other PCs as opposed to, you know, what makes them uh, satisfying to me. Thinking of, like... The parts of your character which are relevant to the other characters are the parts which make them, I think, like a, a good PC. I, I try to sort of be the GM's friend by making a bold choice that introduces a story point into it, but then uh, not trying to force that choice, but just putting it out there. And if things go, uh, I did this in a game with the Pelgrim crew once, and it was leading to uh, my character killing his superior officer, and uh, I in character, of course, I wanted to kill him, but the, to the player, I said, are you sure, like, like, we can back off from this? And then, of course, the, it was Fall of Delta Green, so the answer was, <laughs> being dead won't stop me, go ahead. <laughs> and, that, you know, and so uh, I was playing with people who wanted to pick up the ball and, and run with it, and, and indeed, being dead did, didn't really phase him much. <laughs> we have time for maybe just one more question, if somebody's got something that's uh, come up for them. Yeah, right there. Um, how do you deal with uh, the uh, delinquent players that aren't showing up, you know, one session year, miss right. a session, when you're, not so much like the intro sessions, but the middle of the thing session and the players are missing? How do you deal with absent players? Yeah. Um, some games have playbooks or character choices that are better for those players. So if you, if a, it's always better if they tell you ahead of time, but um, there are some there are some characters whose backgrounds uh, and connections uh, operate during downtime. Like if you imagine them going back to like their hometown and drawing on those connections and then coming back, um, they can those kinds of characters can make absences into something productive. Um, I, I have this problem in my group a lot. It's a group of busy grown-ups, um, and uh, I sort of do the opposite thing. Was I used to try to address it and make it part of the story, and now it's just unaddressed. Uh, you are sort of around and sort of not for some reason, but we're not going to worry about it. Um, and uh, the, the rule is if there was a big decision-making uh, session and you missed that decision-making, your character can say, why are we doing this again? As you go in to do whatever dumb thing everybody else agreed to do. <laughs> but you're not allowed to relitigate the argument over what that was. Um, and other than that, it's just, what? You were here, you we were sort of here, and you sort of weren't. And we're not going to talk about it because we're just people are routinely in and out. For me, it's a little bit of what Robin does, but also if I have a reason why their character would have been important, or if they started something and they missed a session, there's still repercussions for those actions. Their character might have suddenly have had to make a run out of the city because I'm running Shadowrun right now, and they may have been hiding from Lone Star, and all the stuff they did beforehand comes into play for the party themselves that are active. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks to our panel for this. this is the end of our uh, panel. So. And thanks to our volunteers, Dan and Jillian, for... Woo!